there. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. All right, I'm ready. Crater Lake behind you? That's Crater Lake. I'm from Oregon. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Yeah, I've been there, Crater Lake. I'm originally from California. Nice. So, good evening, Howie Hawkins, Green Candidate for President of the United States. How are you good doing? Good evening. Good evening. The Bernie or Bust contingent is delighted that you could join us tonight. Victor Tiffany, founder of Revolt Against Plutocracy and co-founder of the Bernie or Bust movement, sends his appreciation. So let's cut right to the chase. Bernie or Busters agree with you, as they agreed with Jill Stein, on nearly every domestic issue. Bernie's domestic platform aligns with yours, and if anything, yours is even better. So in this short interview format, with an audience that is quite well informed already, there's no reason for us to go over domestic policy. So what I'd like to ask you right off the bat is about foreign policy. True leftists will not want to endorse anyone with their vote who does not also represent their values regarding U.S. imperialism. Specifically, I'd like to know your positions on these three issues. Number one, the stance you feel the U.S. government should take regarding Sudan, Syria, Libya, North Korea, and any other countries you'd care to mention with whom the U.S. has had controversial dealings. Number two, regarding international relations, would you negotiate nuclear arms reductions with Russia, even if China were to refuse to join the negotiations? And if so, how far would you want to reduce the two nuclear arsenals in light of China's growing strength as a rising power? And then the third one, the ISO, International Socialist Organization, has some troubling positions regarding U.S. imperialism. Specifically, they support U.S. wars on Libya and Syria. And are you willing to distance yourself from such positions by the ISO? So let's go back, number one, and then leap in. The stance you feel the U.S. government should take regarding Sudan, Syria, Libya, North Korea, and any other countries you'd care to mention. Well, those countries should not be interfered with by the United States in terms of who governs them. I think some of those regimes deserve criticism, but that doesn't mean we try to change them militarily or by messing in their domestic politics. So, you know, what I'm calling for are peace initiatives, starting with cutting our military budget 75%, orienting it to defending our home territory, withdrawing from these nine shooting wars we're in, the so-called endless wars, and the over 800 foreign military bases. And on the basis of those tension reducing initiatives, uh, deal with these countries and all the countries you named are different circumstances, but deal with them diplomatically and multilaterally. Good, okay, so so you would say then that in a country where we've been in up to our elbows, your your stance, your typical stance would be to get us out of there. Yes. Okay. All right. So let's jump to the second one. Would you negotiate nuclear arms reductions with Russia, even if China were to refuse to join the negotiations? And then if so, how far would you want to reduce the two arsenals in light of China's growing strength as a rising power? Well, this has been one of my three leading issues before coronavirus and the uprising against (laughs) racism and police brutality. They're all life or death issues. And this is the new nuclear arms race. The last bilateral treaty between the United States and Russia expires next February 5th. That concerns strategic arms. None of the major party candidates ever talked about this. 
not Bernie Sanders, not Tulsi Gabbard, certainly not the rest of them. True. And this is a life or death issue. And three years ago, 122 nations agreed to the text of a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons got the Nobel Peace Prize for that. Meanwhile, the bulletin the atomic scientists has moved their doomsday clock the closest they've ever had at the midnight. Yeah. And that's been there since the 1940s. So this is a life or death issue. So I'm saying on a basis of tension reducing initiatives, peace initiatives, I mentioned the military changes. We should also pledge no first use of nuclear weapons and start disarming to a minimum credible deterrent. And then go to Russia and all the nuclear powers and say, we want complete and mutual nuclear disarmament. We're no longer threatening you. Nuclear weapons threatens all of us. And go there with the support of world public opinion. Those 122 non-nuclear nations that are scared to death of the nuclear powers. And I think, you know, that's how we begin. And how far do we want to go? We want complete abolition of nuclear weapons. They should be they should be banned. They're weapons of mass destruction. And they just if we don't get rid of them, they're gonna get rid of us. How might that affect us on the um, economic stage worldwide? I mean, all of the all of the scuffles we're in have to do with economics more than anything else. Do you- yeah, we're, we're the biggest arms exporter in the world. Look, I think we should nationalize our arms industry. It should not be a for-profit industry. It should be an industry that the government can call upon when we need the arms instead of having the arms dealers promoting war. So and now just- we've, got, we've been privatizing uh, military operations to people like Eric Prince. And of course, they have a profit motive. The more conflicts there are, the more contracts they get. So, yeah, there are economic impacts, but uh, there's many things we can do. We have a thing called the Eco-Socialist Green New Deal. It's a massive investment in converting all our productive systems to zero to negative greenhouse gas emissions and 100% clean energy in a decade to deal with this climate meltdown. And that will be a bigger economic stimulus than military Keynesianism, which doesn't have the same punch it used to because war is so automated now, you don't employ as many people. What if, what occurred to me, and I was just thinking, how many powerful, powerful people you'd be looking at the right in the eye, you know, across tables. This is probably something they don't tell you um, on your first day on the job, but you're going to be looking at these powerful people, and you're going to be telling them, "I'm going to shut you down." It, you know, it's just staggering to think about it. That you know, that's not where you don't have to answer that or anything. But I was, it just occurred to me if if I'm Howie Hawkins and I'm staring at some of the most powerful people in the world who, who have been feeding at the trough for decades. And I'm just going to look at him. I'm going to stare him down. I'm going to say, nope. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't turn my phone off. But oh, that's all right. All right. When, when you get, okay, now here's the third one. The ISO, the International Socialist Organization. If, if while you're answering this, you care to, to flesh out your relationship with the ISO, that'd be fine too. It has some troubling positions regarding specifically U.S. wars on Libya and Syria. Are you willing to dis- distance yourself from such positions? Well, I'll distance myself from the positions attributed to them, which are not accurate. They've been smeared, but they no longer exist. So I don't have any relation to them. They dissolved themselves. A lot of them went into DSA, uh, Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, they never called for military intervention in Libya or Syria. They were critical of the leaders of Libya and Syria uh, and trying to support movements of workers and the oppressed in those countries. 
but uh, they were not for military intervention. They're opposed to U.S. imperialism, but they don't. Uh, they didn't put themselves in the position of saying the enemy of my enemy is necessarily my friend. Okay. Because then you make some really bad enemy, make some really bad friends. The so, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So now there are people that have attributed things to them, but those weren't those attributions weren't accurate. That, that makes. Was, that makes some sense. The DSA connection makes some sense because some of the flack I've been reading online regarding your positions have come from some DSA members. So so they're, if they're involved in some kind of smear campaign or if they have a bone to pick with the ISO, that, that might explain some of the stuff I've been reading about. All right, let's leave that one. Um, how about Il Ilan Omar just introduced a bill to withdraw troops from Afghanistan and end the war. Dems and Republicans worked together to defeat her. Would you have supported this bill? Yes. We should have been out of Afghanistan a long time ago. I mean, it was one thing to go in and catch Al-Qaeda for 9-11 in New York as criminals, but to go in and do regime change in a country that, you know, for centuries has been the death of empires was foolhardy. And, uh, you know, there have been some good reporting on how, you know, the Afghans, Talibans and others played U.S., you know, for all they're worth, getting money from U.S. people that didn't even know who they were dealing with or what the game was on the ground. Yeah. Uh, similar to in Iraq, where we sent pallets of cash, you know, to buy influence. And, you know, we spent a lot of money. Some of our own soldiers were putting it in their pockets and deposited it back home. Some of them got caught. It was a big mess. And uh, so, yeah, we should get out of Afghanistan. Those people have dealt with each other for centuries. They will make accommodations. We can criticize, you know, the way the right-wing religious groups treat women and, uh, you know, other criticisms. But you can't go in there with a gun and, you know, tell them this is the way you're going to behave because they're going to fight back, just like we would if somebody invaded our country. The main issue with people is if you if the U.S. goes in with economic an economic agenda and guns or or soft power, if you think about it, the way Noam Chomsky would describe it with soft power, trying to get people, you know, how the U.S. has done in South America, trying to get people to do what they want without necessarily waving a gun in their face. But it kind of amounts to the same thing. And that's been happening, of course, in Afghanistan. So if you're addressing that problem again, and I, I, I'm picturing you doing it. Like you're going to have to be talking to all these rich, powerful people and saying, okay, this money, this money loop is over because it, ultimately all the imperialism problems that people might criticize anyone for are about that money loop. And so, you know, we've, we have to be really creative about amassing the power to close that loop. Yeah, we're using soft power like IMF and World Bank loans as a, uh or, you know, it's basically blackmail. You know, yes. you need the financing, and if you don't do what we say, we're going to cut off your financing, and we may impose economic sanctions. And that's not about the security of the American people. That's about the security of the profits of global corporations based in the U.S., making money by exploiting other countries, where we impose repressive regimes so they can get the minerals, they can exploit the cheap labor, and they can sell to those markets under favorable conditions. Now, there's another type of soft power. You go back to Thomas Paine, an international revolutionary. He fought in the American Revolution. He was in the French Revolution. 
He pissed off the British and then the consolidated power structure in the United States of the merchants and slave owners because he was really for democracy. And he said the best way to spread democracy is to set a good example and then have commercial and cultural exchanges with the rest of the world. And that's the, that's the best soft power to promote democracy and human rights. So I think you apply that to some current situations. We've had a 60-year embargo on Cuba with a few little uh, relief for brief periods. You know, that hasn't worked. Uh, I think you talk to Cuban people, you know, they have a lot of the same aspirations as the average person here. And, you know, they admire certain things about the United States, from baseball to, you know, some civil liberties we have. You know, well, let's have exchanges and they can learn about us and, you know, they'll take care of their situation in uh, the United States and we might learn something from them, like how to do healthcare, yeah, how to do universal yeah. education. I totally, so, totally agree. How do you feel yeah. about Palestine then? Let's jump from, from Cuba to, to Palestinians, especially when it comes to the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm generally opposed to sanctions, but when the oppressed people in a country says impose sanctions on our oppressors, I'm willing to entertain that. I was active in the anti-apartheid movement against apartheid South Africa back in the 70s and 80s. And when we finally got sanctions, the apartheid ruling class decided they'd rather do business and keep making money than be isolated and not make money. So it forced them to change. Same thing in Israel. We've given them a blank check. We haven't checked them really since, I think it was the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, where they wanted to get approval for some occupations or settlements on the West Bank. And uh, Bush's uh, Secretary of State said, no, or we're not gonna, he conditioned our military aid on that. So Israel backed off. So now the Palestinian National BDS Committee says they would like us to impose, to start this process of sanctions military sanctions. And the message to Israel is you got to treat the Palestinians like citizens with equal rights and you got to stop taking their land in the West Bank and blockading Gaza. And we don't get a response, we can escalate the boycott, divestment and sanctions. Uh, right now, Israel feels it's got the full backing in the United States to do anything it wants. And what they're doing is, you know, crimes against humanity towards the Palestinians. Well said. Okay. Well, that's that's everything I had for you, and we used up the 15 minutes. If there's anything else you'd like to end with, feel free. Well, I alluded to the you know five life or death issues, and I want to say this about this COVID epidemic. The two governing parties are presiding over a failed state. You know, Trump gave up. He's a loser. You know, COVID won. He's a loser. But where the hell is Joe Biden? You know, he can command the White House press corps. He's within commuter distance in Wilmington, Delaware. He used to commute to the Senate. He could convene the press corps like Andrew Cuomo was doing early in the pandemic and pound away. We need a test, contact trace, and quarantine program to suppress community spread of the virus. I mean, we're in a situation now where, where the infections are doubling exponentially. It took three months to get the first uh, million infections. And now it took one, two weeks to get the last million. And it took a month before that. So it's doubling and the time is shortening. This is a complete disaster. And while Trump, we know, doesn't know what the hell he's doing, where's Biden? We're all Democratic leadership. They should be pounding away on this. And so, you know, we're headed toward 800,000 deaths by the end of the year 
according to the epidemiologist Erwin uh, Ledbrenner at uh, Columbia. This is a mess. So that's number one. The, the centuries-old pandemic of racism, people of color knew about, but now uh, everybody can see it. They can see it on Living Color in their TV. What happened to George Floyd? And a lot of people are upset, white people too. And so we're calling for defunding the police, which my campaign supports. The problem is there's not enough money in the police budgets to provide housing for the homeless instead of vagrancy charges and drug treatment for the addicted instead of jail and proper treatment for somebody having a mental health episode instead of a clueless cop with a gun. So, and we need to make reparations for centuries of segregation, discrimination, and exploitation of racially oppressed communities. Thank you. That means we've got to defund the military and have a massive investment in our impoverished communities. Thank you. So those are the two new ones and the three original life or death issues with a climate meltdown, I outlined the economic, uh, eco-socialist Green New Deal, the peace initiatives to deal with the nuclear arms race, and the last one is inequality. Inequality is killing us. Working class life expectancies are in decline in this country. People have to choose between paying their utilities at the end of winter or going to the doctor or getting their kidney uh, medicine. Mm -hmm. I know a guy who lived downstairs from me. He died last April because he paid his utility bill instead of his kidney medicine, which Medicaid told him he had to get. He'd been getting. But then, that month he thought he'd just skip it because he had to pay that utility bill. And he died in the middle of the month from kidney failure. I heard you tell Chris and Hedges that. Yeah, and, and that is being repeated all over. And then people's hopes and expectations are disappointed. So they turn to alcoholism, overeating, they get obese, they get diabetes, you know, opioid addiction, there are all kinds of problems, not to mention all the gun violence and suicides. So we call for an economic bill of rights. Roosevelt called for it at the end of his term, last two state of union addresses. Civil rights movement picked it up from the March on Washington to the Poor People's Campaign. We're talking about a job guarantee. If you're willing and able to work, you should be able to get a living wage job that the government provides if you can't find it in the private sector. A guaranteed income above poverty, built into the tax structure. If your income's below the poverty line, the government sends you money to these so you're living above poverty. Affordable housing. We need to expand public housing to the point where everybody has access to affordable housing. Medicare for all, so everybody has access to health care. Lifelong public education, tuition-free from pre-K and child care through post-secondary college, university, trade school, continuing adult education. And finally, retirement. The boomers lived in a period of 45 years of stagnant wages while housing, health care, and college costs rose. They raised their families. They're retiring now, and they're getting a Social Security check that puts them in poverty. So we're saying double Social Security benefits so all seniors are living above the poverty line and have a secure retirement. So that's the summary of our platform, the five life or death issues. And uh, so you just got a short version of my stump speech. Yeah, that was great. And I knew it. I already knew it. I'm, I'm encouraged by it. I was really encouraged when you talked about combining economic uh, justice with racial justice, like the poor people's movement of, of Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah, I, I won't belabor that, but but that that one piqued my interest as you said it. Well, I I belabor it because the thinking of A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King and Michael Harrington, everybody that put together that march on Washington was as civil rights advanced, there was a white backlash mounting, and the white backlash from Goldwater and the Dixie Cats was trying to scare white working people that you know the black folks are going to take your jobs. 
and you're gonna move in your neighborhood and lower your property values. They're a big threat. So what the civil rights leaders concluded is in order to secure civil rights for black people, we have to secure economic rights for all people. Yes. And that was their strategy. And because we didn't succeed in the 60s, the white backlash is now in the White House. And so I think this is the kind of program we need at this time. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know how that 15 minute format would work, but it seemed to work just fine. We got a lot of ground covered in that time. Well, great. Well, have fun in your town hall later in a not too long from now. Yeah, ballot access, man, it's a scramble. That's voter suppression from the Democratic side. Right. You know, our people, 61% of uh, Jill Stein's voters, according to the exit polls in 2016, wouldn't have come out to vote that year. So you don't have the Greens on the ballot, a lot of people are going to stay home. And the stupid Democrats don't understand that. We're not running Greens in every race. So once they finish voting for president, they're going to look down the ballot. Am I going to vote for that crazy Republican or the Democrat? A lot of them are going to vote for the Democrat. You know, when Ralph Nader ran in 2000, the margin of difference in narrow races like Debbie Stabenow in Michigan yeah. and uh, Maria Cantrell, Cantrell in Washington was the, the Nader, the people Nader pulled to the polls. So, you know, the Democrats stop blaming us for their own problems. They just need to get their own people out. Excellent. I'm glad that came up. That That's something definitely that people wonder about. Yeah, the spoiler thing. Yeah, they say I'm the spoiler. I say no. Joe Biden and the Democrats are the spoiler. We've been given a proven nonpartisan solution to spoil presidential elections, and that is get rid of the Electoral College and have a ranked choice national popular vote for president. And if the Democrats would embrace that instead of fighting us to, you know, getting on the ballot, we could have a solution to the spoiler problem because we're not going away. Democrats are going to have to deal with us. So let's solve the problem of you know, winner take all elections from single member districts at ranked choice voting. Okay, I have to say, you got my vote. Thank you. Tell your friends. Tell I your will. Friends. I will. Thank all you. Right.